Okay. Thanks for coming. Listen, if, if you didn't get a handout, there are some on the table in the back. Anybody not get a handout that one? I printed out. If it, somebody want to bring a few up here, I think Melody needs one. There might be others that could kind of walk around. I, I brought about a hundred copies, so we should we should have enough for everybody. If you end up not getting one, then feel free to. You can always email me, and I can send it to you after the fact because I I, I have some things on there that we're going to work through. Welcome to week three of this class that I just simply, is, I'm calling Thinking Biblically about 2020. If you remember, if you were with us the first week, one of the things that I said is what I thought was actually important for us to do is to process a bit what we went through. And it, I mean, I, I received a, a kind email, somebody thanking me and ultimately our, our church staff and elders for doing this because it is just actually really tempting in a lot of our human relationships. I mentioned this week one. It actually is tempting our relationships to be unhealthy by not dealing with stuff. And a sign of relational and ultimately emotional health is that you deal with some of the messy things. And if you don't deal with the messy things, I'm telling you, it doesn't ultimately clean up some of that. The reality is we need to be dealing with the difficult things, un, you know, unhelpful or hurtful comments in a relationship. Those things can and should be talked about. Differences of opinion should be worked out, and of, and of all places where that should be common, you would expect that to be in the church, and yet we can be just as guilty of not dealing with things or separating, ghosting, whatever you want to say. But I wanted to have a, a time and a space where we could wrestle with some things, and I, what, I, what I've tried to do then, and I'll, I'll do this every week, is I will address a question, like what did we learn about the world in 2020? That was last week. And for each of these kind of questions, I'll give some kind of categories to help us evaluate or even just more clearly see what's going on, right? So last week we talked about the world, and in talking about the world, I gave the categories of a first world culture, second world culture, third world culture, right? And in some ways that's kind of heady stuff you're going to get in like a graduate seminar and you're reading Reef and all these guys that most of us have never heard of. But in reality, it might be helpful to say, well, in a first and second world culture, there is a belief in transcendence and a higher power. In a third world culture, transcendence gets replaced with imminence. The problem is with a third world culture, not third world country, we're not talking about economic and military power. We're talking about transcendent versus imminent, believing in the sacred or only the secular. The problem with a third world culture is we as humans were made to be connected and seeking and relating to God. We were made to be meaning-making machines. We were made to have a big story that directs our life and our purpose. So if all of a sudden you truncate that and take this beautiful sacred and transcendence and shove that into a little, little, little cage where it's only secular and imminent, guess what? The secular and imminent things get imputed, get, get steroids of transcendence added to them, which is why you see in our current day, and really over the last couple decades, that the focus on religion has turned now to the focus on politics. Like that is why you see that. So that is why politics, and you can't avoid this. There's no way you can avoid it. If you're living in a third world culture, you cannot avoid the growth of interest or the growth of discussion regarding political things. They're just there. Welcome to a third world culture, right? And that's just there. So that's just a helpful category to say, oh, okay, that makes sense of why this has become a bigger deal. That makes sense why it's so animated and heated. And that explains a little bit of the divisions going on. Well, that, that's one thing to talk about the world, but what about the church? And so last week I said, hey, here's, this, he, here, here's the good news. We can diagnose the problem by just seeing the category, okay, we're in a third world culture. Now I kind of understand the world I'm living in a bit differently. Here's the problem. That third world culture and that move the focus on politics didn't just stay right outside the property of our local churches. It seeped right into our living rooms and our cable TV watching. It seeped into our agendas and the way we would speak and think. It came right into our sanctuaries and our Sunday school classes and our agendas. So all that, unfortunately, has kind of seeped in. 
Just in the same way that in any culture, you really aren't separate from it. You, you are part of it. And it's hard to even see how the culture has catechized you. That's probably a good word. We are being discipled every day by the culture in which we live. That's just, that's just, that's just par for the course. That's the way we work. And so to understand that becomes important when we then begin to think about evaluating the church. So let me just, I'm going to pray. I'm going to start with the question. I want to ask generally, what did 2020 teach us about the church? I just want to throw that out there, spend a few minutes talking about it. Then I'm going to give you kind of a lens, categorical lens, to give you some insight into what arguably is happening in the church. And then we're going to follow up with kind of some closing discussion. But let me just pray and ask the Lord to minister to our time this morning. Father, thanks for this growth hour that we can come together as the church. Thank you that even right now in a class down the hall, several of our brothers and sisters are, are working through a significant book that focuses on just the nature of Jesus' person. Thank you that right now many of our children or grandchildren are learning about God's Word. We've got fourth and fifth graders and even our middle school looking at catechism questions and the New City Catechism and younger children learning stories about the scriptures and about God and the main characters in the Bible. And we've got high school students wrestling with the deeper things of God as it connects to their life and their identity. Father, right now, you are catechizing our church in these 45 minutes, and we thank you for that. So may we use our time well. May we be growing and learning in this process and help our discussion to be fruitful and honoring to you and to one another, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me open it up just for a few minutes. And I'm going to ask you the question, big question, could go all over the place, right? Uh, what did 2020 teach us about the church? Thoughts? Yeah. Yes. The, the answer was church is easily persuaded by personal opinion. Absolutely. And churches were completely divided, right? You didn't see this uniformity, oh, this is the biblical way to go, right? You didn't see that. You actually saw... Churches were all over the map. Pastors were all over the map. Elder boards were all over the map, etc. Other comments? Yes. Church is resilient. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a, it, it went through a lot. Right? Every church went through a lot of stuff. The spring of 2020, shutting down for a period of weeks, most, if, uh, 99% of churches did exactly that. Um, finding ways to meet outside, flexing with ministry. I mean, all of a sudden, at least even in our church, we realized there were a lot of like, physical touches with people's lives that was very much connected to some of the regular routines of ministry that when you pull those up, we've got to be creative because we've got to be caring for people and we've got to find a way to do that in a, in a pandemic, which is not easy to do. Other comments? That's right. So Dave throws out the suggestion or the comment that the church itself is becoming more of a target in our culture. And... and if, if there's like a source behind that, you, we could just say, welcome to third world culture, right? One of the tenets of a third world culture is that traditions, institutions, uh, any kind of authority from outside, transcendent authority, all of that becomes not just, well, that's what they believe, we believe something else. It actually becomes a target. So the nature of a third world culture is that it becomes an anti-culture. So traditional marriage, traditional value of life, all of those are going to be targets. And again, proof of that, that most third world culture anal analysts give is actually abortion, which happened not just this last year, but in the 70s, right, when it was legalized. Like, to them, that is, bloop, we became a third world culture officially, you could argue, with Roe v. Wade. But that's not what most of us were thinking. Like, most of us are not thinking we're living in a third world culture. We've been voting planning, strategizing, all these organizations to try to, 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 to try to gain back a healthy second world culture, but that's not the culture we're living in. And so you can just see that, the, and it hasn't gone any different. It's, I mean, you're not, you're not seeing that move. You're seeing more and more things attacked because maybe in the 70s, human life is defined differently, but man, marriage still has quite a definition. You would not say that now. Now we're even talking about gender as completely. Everything, even things that you would think would be biological, are now up for grabs. Welcome to third world culture. And that, that, that's a little disheartening in some sense, right? But if you want to know why, what cancel culture means, it means they're canceling second world culture. 
and they're promoting third world culture. So at least we now know where we live and what's expected. It will not get easier. It will get harder. Other thoughts on what we saw in the church in 2020? That's right. So the, the answer was given is it, it accelerated and maybe has formally established, you could almost argue, internet church as being a regular option for people to do church. Again, you, you, will, you will hear or see a pushback on that from our end, right? You, you, you will see a pushback on our end because we think biblically the physical gathering is significant. So we're not going to have, hey, join us on your app or iCampus. Literally, First Baptist Dallas, a historic church in Dallas, Texas, they have an iCampus. So you can be part of the iCampus. And I've actually gone on to watch one of their services, and they're gonna, they have in a little box, people are saying, you know, like, they've, they've got some iCampus pastor who's like in a little box, a, you know, instant messaging box on the side, allowing you to make comments, and you're like, yes, the reference was verse 4, does anybody need a copy of the trailer? Like, they're literally messaging you, and you've got people from all over. Like, I remember one lady goes, uh, you know, this is a church in Dallas, and somebody in South Carolina was like, so excited to be at church, got my, got my coffee, now give me some Jesus. That person may have never even visited Dallas. The person may not be a member in any way, but that's arguably the church she's calling home. Like, you would just never see, in my view, that being something like Jesus. Like, no worries if you get together. Hey, who cares? Just go ahead and use the app. Right, but we're saying, and we've actually seen people in our own congregation do those kind of things. Right, so churches, you got to make a decision, and all the new literature is pushing pastors, dude. This is the this is the way to grow. This is the way you grow your church. You got this huge eye presence. Like, no, that is that's marketing moves. That's this. That, here's the one mistake churches made, and we've made this a lot in an entrepreneurial context, like North America and America specifically. We have replaced ecclesiology with missiology. Ecclesiology is what the church is. Missiology is what the church does. And if you make what the church does the most important thing, then you can actually tweak and redefine what the church is in an unhealthy way. And when you do that, you're actually not producing disciples. You just get viewers. We, don't, we aren't trying to, to, to produce viewers we're trying to produce disciples. And to do that, it requires a physical gathering. If you can't be baptized on an, at an iCampus, and that would be interesting to see how they do that. If you can't receive the communion cup on an iCampus, then by definition, you are not a church. Right? And that's just something that we're just going to need to fight in today's age. One more. We'll throw one more out there. Yes. Yeah, the comment was made that the division from 2020 is carried over to this year, and that would be, I think, very true. In fact, that, that leads us into the, the, what I want to show you. So look at your notes, and I, it, it's, it's sad when you think about division or fracturing, but, it, but an article came out this summer that has gotten a lot of interest, and it's simply called the six-way fracturing of evangelicalism. So realize, we're not even talking about the church. I'm not even kind of saying the church in general throwing in all three major branches of Protestant, Roman Catholic, or Eastern Orthodox. I'm not even going that broad. I'm not even going as broad to say all of Protestantism. I'm going to say just evangelicalism, just our particular tradition, has had a huge fracturing that is palpable. And, and the article kind of goes on and say, okay, so it's one, thing, it's one thing when you go to a doctor, they ask you your symptoms, they, they, you think you might have a broken hand, they feel the hand. It's a whole other thing when you have like a CAT scan, an MRI, an X-ray, right? This, what 2020 gave us was a move from just a few, a few symptoms or even a mere X-ray to we got a full MRI. We got to see exactly what's going on in the body of Christ and evangelicalism. And they argue that there, is, there have been six responses. Now, I'm going to skip down to five and 
six real quick because I'm not going to spend any time on those because technically those people aren't even going to church. Number five is the de-churched evangelical. They've left the church entirely. Now, to be fair, many of them have left the church for some of the reasons we're going to talk regarding the, you know, the political aspects of evangelicalism. But to be honest, some have left the church because it's just not political enough. Like if the church is not functioning like a political interest group, and this happens in our own body, it, it, the, moment, the moment we said, we are asking you to, you know, and even as certainly early on, not in the season we're in right this moment, but early on when there were all these questions and the moment we threw masks on the equation of social distancing, we had people immediately separate, say that you, if you are not attacking, in my words, if you're not attacking third world culture with second world culture, if you are not drawing a line in the sand, using Christian liberty stuff, etc., etc., then we will not participate. So be, be aware, the, the de-churched is not just those that have walked away from Jesus, They've actually walked toward a whole different Messiah altogether. Uh, the deconverted evangelical, they, they, they are the ones that left the Christian faith entirely. But I don't want to spend time on those. What I want to show you, like an MRI, is numbers one to four. And what I've tried to do for each of these, the, these categories were given by this article. Again, you want to email me, I'm happy to send you the PDF of the article. You won't get it during the Bears game, so just wait till afterwards, right? But uh, one through four, these are the categories that are used in this article. Neo-fundamentalist evangelical, mainstream evangelical, neo-evangelical, and post-evangelical. Now, before I even start that, let me tell you this little history. About exactly 100 years ago, guess what? This same thing happened. When I was on Trinity campus on Thursday night to teach my New Testament class, I always drive to my left, a place that I spend a lot of time. It's called the library. And on the side of that building is the name of a man named Carl F.H. Henry. Now, you may not have heard his name before because he is now with the Lord. But back in the 1920s, when liberalism, theological liberalism, was infiltrating certainly the Americas. I mean, honestly, it hit the U.S. well into the 1800s, but it was really around, really about 1885 is when it started to strike the most. But between 1885 and 1935 in the U.S. is when every church was confronted by theological liberalism. Do we need to believe in the resurrection? Do we need to believe in the virgin birth? Is the Bible inerrant? Like, these are big theological questions. There was a split. And uh, there's famous book, uh, J. Gresham Machen wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. And he was talking about theological liberalism. He wasn't talking about politicalism. Now when you hear the word liberal, my guess is you think politics. 1920s, you hear the word liberal, you're thinking theological. Now interestingly, Machen wrote this book. Again, I got a copy. You, you can feel free to borrow it. I mean, it's a little dated, but it's interesting to read how he's saying this is what is liberal and this is what is Christian. They, and he basically argued his book. You don't even need to read it. I'll tell you the summary. Lib, theological liberalism is no longer Christian. Now, at that time, 1919, on Biola University's campus, right, where I served for a decade, they edited a two-volume set of book called The Fundamentals. And in this book, The Fundamentals, it was literally the fundamentals of the faith. Like, what are the doctrines that are essential to honor Scripture and to be Orthodox Christian? And they listed those out. Guess what? Things like authority of Scripture, uh, virgin birth, resurrection, all those things were in there. None of those things was politics, by the way. All of that for them was simply theological. Now, there were a couple different responses in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s to the fundamentals. In fact, most Christians, people like in our tradition, would have called ourselves fundamentalists back in 1919. Now, why would we have said that? We would have said that because we hold to these core Christian doctrines. But now you hear the word fundamentalist, and it's a pejorative term. It's polemical. It's negative. But back in 1919, it was like, no, I, I hold to the authority of Scripture. I'm a fundamentalist. 
Now, there was a split, though, because there's this little nasty thing called in the world but not of the world that every generation has to figure out, every Christian has to figure out, every church. And those, those that held to the theological convictions of fundamentalism in the sense of theological fundamentals decided to act differently and split in regard to what that looks like in the world. Hence, those that wanted to claim the name fundamentalism were separate, had a group separate them from, from those that they began to call themselves the evangelicals. Now, what's the word evangelical? If you were in first service, if you don't know this, we will publicly flog you. If you don't know, evangelical means the gospel, the good news, which is a missional thing. Like, the gospel's not something we're hiding. It's not something we're kind of keeping for ourselves. Get me generators and sandbags and move me to the most unpopulated state. I usually would pick on like a South Dakota. No. It should be in front of what we say. We should be saying it all the time. So the critique of, the critique of evangelical, uh, by the evangelicals of the fundamentalists, that the fundamentalists try to hide back away to separate from the culture where evangelicalism, led by Carl F. H. Henry, said, we got to be in the world. Now, which brand do you think this church adopted? What's the denomination's name? Hope Fundamentalist Free Church? Hope Evangelical Free Church. Carl F. H. Henry called the church and kind of hoarded up this evangelicalism that said, yes, we need the fundamentals of the faith, but that isn't a purity from or defense against. That is a faithful presence within. That is proclamation of the gospel. So you can go right up Willowbrook Road and drive by a sweet church of people that would claim the name fundamentalist, or you can come to our church where literally evangelical is in our name and our denomination. Oh, by the way, our seminary, where Carl F. H. Henry taught, he's got the library named after him, is Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So we're talking 100 years ago, this same split happened. But then it was about theological convictions and what that looked like with culture. Move forward to 2020, not 1920. Now I say the word fundamentalist, and you think of somebody who's withdrawn. You're not thinking of, I mean, you're like, I've never, I didn't even know there were books with that name. They are. When you, and when you, hear, when you hear the word liberal, here's what you're thinking. You're thinking Nancy Pelosi. You're not thinking Rudolf Bultmann. So a guy named Owen Strand, guy I studied with in my days in school, about my age, his last name looks like Strachan. S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N. He just wrote a book that probably most people aren't connecting to Machen called Christianity and Wokeism. I was a little bit offended by the title because Machen wrote a pretty significant book where this one is clearly trying to be a bit more polemical. find it very disheartening to hear it read his argument. I just, I just don't agree with his premises, even if I can understand some of his concerns. He's a big fan of Carl Henry. And he is trying, in his writings, to do some kind of a split, again, with evangelicals. But for him, it is no longer between people who have different theological beliefs. In fact, he's not even dealing with liberalism in a political sense. What kind of liberalism is he dealing with? Politics. If you are not an anti-masker and an anti-vaxxer, according to Owen, I'll probably see him at the next conference we gather at ETS down in Texas in November. He and I are always there. But if he were to come up to me and say that you didn't have people wear masks or promote vax at your church, did you? If, if, if in any way I say, actually, yeah, we, we did social distancing, he would say, you're woke. He would say it to me. That I have to be giving my Christian middle finger to Pritzker? I'm not sure there is one, but let's just say there is. <laughs> that I should be doing everything I can to, to fight the most extreme form, and that I should be pro-Republican and specifically pro-Trump in every way. And if I'm not, me. Not just somebody who lives in San Francisco who votes Democrat every year. Me, your pastor, would be considered by him woke. 
So am I, am I woke? I mean, I woke up this morning. Some of you may be like, what is woke? It's in any way acknowledging the common discourse. If, if, if you had a Black Lives Matter sign in your yard, guess what you were? Woke. Non-woke would say all lives matter. If you in any way promoted any kind of concern of racism in our culture, anything, any tip the hat rather than some colorblindness, then guess what you are? Woke. If you have any way, I mean, if you just aren't like literally suing the school board for the gender kind of questions that they might, like my son got asked in his physics class again this year, guess what you are? You're woke. There's no middle ground. There's no room for navigating third world culture, thinking about faithful presence, gone. You're either in, you're out. Which actually is a lot like what it was in the 1920s. So, so be aware, this kind of fracture has happened before. It actually turned out generally for the good of the church, but to be honest, in the middle of the divorce, it was ugly. And Christian brothers and sisters called other Christian brothers and sisters liberal, at that time theologically. Now, if you're liberal, it has nothing to do with your view of the Bible. Guess what it has to do with? For whom you voted. Let me show you this six-way fracturing. And for each of these four, one through four, I remember I I'm not going to cover five and six. For each of these, I tried to give some examples of ministry focus, Christian concerns, political bent, and response to third world culture. What is called neo-fundamentalism. That would be, brothers and sisters, my classmate Owen Strand. Totally. He's a number one. Ministry focus is a bit of a narrow, even spiritual, meaning it's a lot of gospel talk, but it doesn't, you're not allowed to take that into some of the, me- like the moment you start talking about the symptom of the gospel being caring for the poor, you're, just, you're moving towards some kind of socialist liberal agenda. Like you can't talk about those kind of things. It's got to stay up in the heavens a bit about Jesus, the gospel, sin, and anything that is tainted by what our culture is talking about is viewed as outside the bounds. And it's very culturally critical, even a separatistic version of evangelicalism. The Christian concerns, like if you're saying, what are you going to hear those pastors talk about all the time? What are those Christians thinking about all the time? The church's leftward drift. That's all Owen talks about is woke churches. That's it. Secular ideologies and hostility to Christianity. The political bent would be strongly right. I may have worded that too loosely. It would be right. With a theological leaning toward Christian nationalism, there would be this sense that this is a special nation, God's chosen people, there's American exceptionalism. Uh, it would be, it would be the, the uh, I stand... For the flag, I kneel for the cross, and you would resonate with that, never thinking that those two things really are apples and oranges. Because I don't know how you read Revelation 5 and bring those two together when it says every nation and tribe, right? But it's just implicit in this particular bent. And, and what's the response to third world culture? Culture war. That's what it is. It's World War III, culture, third world culture versus second world culture. And we're going to take America back for God. You ever heard that language? Big gatherings at major cities, Washington, D.C., take America back for God? You're probably hearing some version of a type 1 church. Uh, type 1 evangelicalism, neo-evangelical, neo neo-fundamentalist evangelical. Again, don't hear fundamentalist. I am not using, and this article is not, they specifically say this, they are not using fundamentalist in the pejorative sense that it's often now had. It is simply saying a withdrawal and an attack. It's a withdrawal and an attack. Now here is mainstream evangelical. This is the, this is the historic core that still remains, and I'm giving you symptoms of them. Their ministry focus is the historic evangelical aims. Uh, conversionism, activism, biblicism, and crucicentrism. Those are the four it's, uh, kind of summative doctrines of what historic evangelicalism holds to. A guy named Bebbington wrote a whole ton of stuff on this. What is their concern? The Great Commission. Like they, they know there's politics and they know they disagree, but that's not the mission of the church. 
They, they kind of want to stay as neutral from that as they can because it's too messy. And there's reasons to disagree over these things. But there's no reason to disagree about the fact that we've got to be, our institutional goal is to save people's souls. That's our goal. The political bent, probably generally right, because they would have serious concern with secular left. But get this, they would also be very concerned about secular rights influence on Christianity. So here, here would be this group. They would be, they voted for Trump as a lesser of two evils. Right? They, to them, they would be like, well, if it's between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, I'm going Donald Trump. But I'm not super impressed with either of my options. Now you got the neo-evangelical. The ministry focuses on the gospel message, but here's what you're going to see a difference from number two. Number three, it's the gospel message, but they're not afraid to have gospel symptoms as part of it. So like one of the symptoms, and here's where it gets so messy. Here's where you know kind of your own impulse. One of the symptoms of the gospel is love our neighbor. So if a church is wanting to have symptoms of the gospel, they might have a concern for, dare I say it, the poor. Now the moment you do that, right, a number one, all they can hear about with the poor is socialist agendas, government programs, Free handouts, abuse of the system, ridiculous. Like, literally, that kind of language gets so flooded with the political tensions and discussions of our day that it makes them a little nervous. Whereas a number three is like, I get it, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to talk about tax. I'm just saying we should be showing in our deeds what our words proclaim. So they're much more comfortable talking about some of the issues that a number one would just say are anathema. They would be cuss words. If you're doing anything other than a color blindness in number one, they're uncomfortable. But a number three is going to say Black Lives Matter as an institution is total third world culture. It is anti-culture. It's trying to destroy the family. Can't support that at all. But as a general premise... I do think that a black life might matter. And I shouldn't be afraid to say that. A three would say that. Christian concerns would be concerned with global Christian issues as a global evangelical. They are leery of what's become a particularly American evangelicalism. Here's their political bent. Here's number three. By the way, brothers and sisters, my guess is some of this could be a little bit related to generations. So I'm guessing if you have a millennial right now, my hunch is 90-some percent of those are not number ones. If you want to know where your grandkids are, or your kids, if they are Bible-believing, committed Christians, my guess is they're closer to three. Here, here's where they'd be. They wouldn't even like the language of lesser of two evils, like, numbers two, like number two is comfortable with. They feel politically homeless. Totally homeless. They don't feel like they can align with either political party. Again, the hardcore Republicans in the room are thinking, you've got to be kidding me. As if there isn't one that seems obviously right. But just so you know, just, just kind of x-ray, right? If you want an MRI of your own thinking, if you have wedded hardcore biblical Christianity with one political party, if it's the Republican Party, you're probably a number one. If it's the Democratic Party, you're probably a number four. They're concerned with the left, looking at political bent, but they're highly concerned with the right's acceptance of Trump and the failure of Christians to engage topics of race and sexuality. They're just as willing to look at the church's faults, like the sex abuse scandals, whether it be in the Roman Catholic Church or in the Protestant Church or the financial scandal. They're willing to talk about all those things. But they're also just really concerned that the gospel symptoms aren't part of our conversation. Here, here's their response to third world culture. Spiritual engagement with serious concern over American 
politicization of Christianity. They're very concerned about that. They would not be buying Owen's book, Christianity and Wokeism. Wouldn't be buying it. Now let me give you a little, interestingly, just in timing, the Pew Research Center on Wednesday revealed some results of those who self-identify as evangelical. Fascinating. Here's a little summary. Uh, In... 2016, sorry, 2008, sorry about that, 2008. In 2008, of those who identify as self-evangelicals, 16.1% went to church only one time a year. So 16% of self-identifying evangelicals went to church only one time a year. Never or seldom, basically. Guess what it was in 2020? The number of self-identifying evangelicals who go to church never or seldom increased from 16.1% to 26.7%. That means uh, over a quarter of people who self-identify as evangelicals actually regularly go to church. Get this, those that go weekly dropped in 2008 from almost 59% down to 49%. So you saw a 10% swing. Let me add, let me this, Barna did a similar study recently. They argue that those who identify as evangelical, 35% of Americans identify as evangelical. But get this. Of the Americans who are part of denominations that are actually evangelical, it's only 25%. That means you've got 10% of Americans identifying as evangelical who have no connection to a historically evangelical church. But if you test those same people are tested for nine orthodox doctrines, did Jesus have to raise from the dead? Was he sinless? Is the Bible authoritative in every way? Guess what it is? Of those self-identifying evangelicals, only 6% qualify. Translation, the word evangelical has become a political term. And all you got to do is watch the news and you'll hear the same thing. All you got to do is hear your political candidates and when they're saying evangelical, they are not talking to the free church of America. They are talking to a political segment of our culture. So one-third of America will identify as that, but only 6% actually believe historic evangelical. And we're not talking about you have to agree on these small little things like the timing of the rapture. We're like, did Jesus live a perfect sinless life? Only 6% of that 35% group would say yes. Is the Bible authoritative? Only 6% of that 35% would say yes. Does Jesus have to have risen from the dead? Only 6% of those 35% would say yes. So what's an evangelical? You can now see, brothers and sisters, why those in group number three don't like to use the term. Because for them, that is not who they are. They are evangelical like a number two maybe, except for them they think the word is spoiled. It's rotten. It can't be used anymore. CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, cable news, they've taken over the term. We've got to describe ourselves something else. Last is the post-evangelical. This by sure would be, for sure would be a much smaller segment, a younger segment of those who claim Christianity. They would have a broader Christian bent that is very concerned to address corruption, abuse, and Christian nationalism in the church. Anything that smacks of Christian nationalism, they would smack back. And they would believe that social justice issues outside the church are super important. They would be the churches that would have the Black Lives Matter sign in front of their church and in front of their homes. Their concerns is a Christianity completely distinct from what they would call the misguided political evangelicalism. Not only will they no longer identify as evangelical, but many of them have actually moved outside of churches like ours, for example, to churches like mainline denominations. They go to church, or you're seeing a ton of these churches start. There's one in Rockford recently. Planted church, growing leaps and bounds, younger people, they only use Apostle or Nicene's Creed. Like real broad Christianity. It's not even, they're not even going to use these kind of fleshed out evangelical uh, doctrinal statements. It's going to be, we hold the Nicene Creed. That's it. 
political bent, yeah, probably a mixture, clearly left-leaning, most would vote Democrat, and a strong rejection of, get this, not the secular left, but the secular right. Trust me, they won't watch Fox News. Response to third world culture, they would see the social justice pursuits as being something with, with which Christians can unite and join, uh, even if they do it for different reasons. Again, they would claim to be intentionally Christian. They just think that evangelicalism has been overtaken by a foreign and strange enemy. Now look at the implications down below. The article basically argues, get this, no longer can churches have people from three connected groups. It has become the day that politics has become so divisive that you're never going to see a one, two, three in the same church or a two, three, four in the same church. They can't. If there's ones, twos, and threes, both the ones are bothered by the threes, and both the threes are bothered by the ones. If there's a two, three, fours in a church, the fours are driving the twos crazy, and the twos think the fours are wacky liberals. So now you've got type A, B, and C church. Type A church is church comprised of almost entirely ones and twos. A type B church is the twos and threes, and the C church is the threes and fours. John Piper's a famous pastor in Minneapolis, retired now. His replacement, a guy named Jason Meyer, resigned in July over this very reason. One of the three things he said about his church as he was resigning is that he is a type B church guy and he believes Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis is a type A. When there was the sauna, massage killings of what of five or six Asian, I think women, by some guy a certain number of years ago, months ago in Atlanta, he, would pr- he prayed specifically for the Asian American community. Type threes hear that and say, well, yeah, I mean, that seems like a... You know, that seems like some kind of a racial identified killing. They're all Asian Americans. What are the type ones here? Wokeism. Some version of intersexuality or critical race theory. When uh, Derek Chauvin put his knee on the neck or back or whatever you want to find what happened in Minneapolis... And Jason Meyer wouldn't have a back the blue sign in front of the church. The ones got real angry. The threes were very thankful. He felt like he was at a church that was a type A church, made up of one and twos, and his convictions regarding Christian identity was really a type B church, and he literally resigned in July. They have yet to replace him. You're seeing that in churches even around here. Not the resignation thing per se, but you are seeing that if you were a one and you felt like how your church handled COVID sounded to you, using the language of the article, a bit too two or three-ish, you're gone. And guess what kind of church you would go to? You think you'd go to another two-three church? Woo-hoo-hoo. No. You go to church. This is the comment I've heard. They don't make us wear masks there. They're biblical. They don't, they, don't, they don't do the social distancing. They call it the flu. They don't call it a virus. It's just the flu. Now again, I'm not trying to define or explain what is right or wrong in those statements. I'm just trying to be descriptive and say that is a different political approach. And you will find, here's the sad part, brothers and sisters, guess what churches are doing now? Churches are not being formed under the biblical definitions of what is orthodox theologically, they are now being made up of people with similar political views. So you will find that there will be red churches, there will be blue churches, and then there will be purple churches. And if you're a red Christian, guess where you will go? To a red church. And if 2016, this article says, was the beginning of unveiling that, by 2020, with 
election crisis and chaos, racial divides across the whole country, and you add this sweet little thing called a global pandemic, now we know where we stand. So type 1 churches are growing, or type A churches are growing leaps and bounds by, guess who? Church transfers who think their church is woke, going socialist, liberal. Again, hear Machen's title. They don't mean liberal like they don't believe in Jesus. They don't mean liberal like they don't believe in the gospel. They don't mean liberal like they don't preach the Bible. They mean liberal because they wouldn't put a back the blue sign in their yard. So you hear that. How do you respond? You tell me. I just gave you a kind of little MRI of American evangelicalism. You can maybe see yourself in that. You can maybe see your children or grandchildren. You can maybe see some of your friends or neighbors. You hear that. How do you respond? Tell me. What's that? Yes. It frightens her, she says. Other comments, yeah. Yeah, she says, it saddens me that politics has overtaken our Christian faith. And, and it has. It has. But, but remember what I said at the beginning. None of us should be surprised by this, because guess what culture we've been in for the last 50 years? Guess what culture? Third world culture. So guess what we've done beautifully? We have been catechized to elevate the political, just like everyone around us, even the most diehard liberals that politically that you or none of you may be, and we've minimized the theological, which is exactly what the rest of our culture did. Like, think about how sad that is for a second. The rest of our culture has removed transcendent, put in imminent, and replaced religion with politics. And you literally come to the church in 2021, and that's exactly what we've done. All of those, all those transcendents, core and where's Christian liberty on whether you're for guns or against guns, whether you want this taxation or that taxation, what you think of health care, political, what do, you, what do you do with immigration, all of that, there is, no, there is no divide, there's no Christian freedom in that now. Those things have been so amped up with a form of transcendence that we've adopted the exact same heartfelt culture views as those around us who don't believe in Jesus whatsoever. And now the word liberalism, in your mind, is not what Machen was writing about, it's what Strand is writing about. It's no longer to do with theology, it has to do with politics. And I don't know how you get through that mess. Other than arguably saying what you're going to see, unless there's some kind of a change in the next 20 years, you're going to find that you will now have church denominations that are not divided by how they view baptism. <laughs> it's not going to be based on ecclesiology. We believe in presbytery. We believe in congregationalism. It's not going to be based on authority of the Bible, infallibility versus inerrancy or whatever. It's going to be based on who you voted for in elections. They become political action group churches if we don't fight that. If ones and threes or twos and fours, maybe even one through fours, this article says that's impossible, can learn to bring back the transcendence and not the imminence that's there between religion and politics. We just got two more. I'm already going late. You're, all the don'ts are being eaten by the time you get out there. Any other, just one or two more comments and then we got to end. Any other reflections? The politicization? Yeah. That's right. And, well, and, and here's, please, that's a great example. Why? When you go from transcendence to imminence, you still need the big story. Right? This is exactly what third world culture does. It takes things that used to be good and evil was God and devil, and now good and evil is literally truncated down imminently to political views. So you will know you're dealing with a third world culture political ad when they label Obama or Pelosi or Trump or whom Pence as the worst thing ever. They're using language that you would only speak of the devil and they're going to talk about their political opponent. And guess what? We've done the exact same thing in the church. We've done that. We've demonized our political opponent, which is exactly what third world culture people do. And we've done that in the church. And what the church should have said, the moment that started seeping past the door, they should have said, whoa, 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 whoa. I get Pelosi and, 
and Obama, I'm just using examples that are probably quite common in our church, I totally see where there's disagreement or even some sense of evil. But man, I don't want to minimize evil. That all of a sudden now, the evil powers of Satan and the principalities of this dark place are somehow corresponding. Like, that's just not a right definition of evil. If that's what evil is, then you've got no idea. Right? But that's third world culture language. Our political opponent is devil demonic. And get this. The one we're for becomes messianic. Remember that sign I told you about last week driving down Hamburg Road? It says, Save America. And on the very bottom, President Donald J. Trump. And all I can think of is in L.A., 100 years ago, guess what sign they had over this one hotel, big neon lights? Jesus saves. Now, who does the saving? That's third world culture. That guy, you may completely agree, I have no idea who that is. Maybe he's coming to second service. You may completely agree with his politics, but that guy has been discipled by a third world culture. No, no, Donald Trump is not a Messiah. Well, did you hear about the banner and one of the, one of the banners about uh, using, I think, a passage from Isaiah regarding like a, a political ad for Donald Trump that was, had to be somewhere in Georgia, some county in Georgia was on the side of a road, a political ad. I mean, you are now seeing third world culture has totally invaded American Christianity. And if we don't fight to remove that, you, you, if we don't fight hard doctrinally to do that, we're in a world of hurt. Last one, then we got to go. I'm already late. I'm going to get fired. That's right. So we, we are going to have to, I mean, the issue, the issue goes back to what we talked about last week. We are going to have to work super hard to actually make sure we are fighting against third world culture if, and when I mean fighting against cult, third world culture, I don't mean like the types one are doing, where they're trying, to, they're trying to reinstate the second world culture in America. We need to fight the third world culture that it, the way it's discipled us in the church. Right? And we need to make sure we are not politicized. Because that's the irony of, of a guy like Owen. That's the irony of him. In trying to be against the liberals, he's actually adopted their third world culture attack mode by demonizing them, by being anti-culture. He's just anti-third world culture. And he wants to be a second world culture. And the reality is he stopped having the church be a kingdom embassy in this world. Those things have infiltrated, and he didn't even see it. And that's the risk we all face. I ask the question that I leave with you with the last under application. How can a church within this fragmented, fragmented evangelicalism pursue true unity after 2020 and i would say in closing that is the challenge every church faces but if i could focus in on home that is the challenge this church has to face if you are a one or a two or a three or a four how can you be part of a church that will not fully align with all of your particular views and how should we think about that all right if you've got kids can you go snag them so the youth workers don't protest against me, and anti-culture anti their pastor. Uh, good to see you. We'll see you next week.